How does our appreciation for comic books change as we grow up? You can read the same comics today that you read 10, 20, even 30 years ago and come away with a completely different experience. It's not the comics that change, of course, it's our tastes and our comprehension as we grow and mature. There are certain books, however, that are something else entirely. Some books are so effective at capturing a certain time, whether it's an era like the 90s or an age like your teenage years, that reading them at any point in your life instantly takes you back to that time. I'm Matt Loon, and today on the show I'm joined by Cena Grace and Joe Glass to discuss the comics that captured and redefined their teenage years. This is That's the Issue. Uh, I'm a writer and artist in this comic book industry, <laughs> uh, and uh, I think I'm most known for now Iceman at Marvel Comics, but uh, I've done a lot of memoir and image comics and, and a bunch of other series, and then uh, I'm currently celebrating the release of Jughead's Time Police at Archie Comics and uh, promoting an upcoming series at Boom called Ghosted in L.A., uh, well, I'm Joe Glass. Um, I'm the comics uh, writer and creator of the series The Pride, uh, about a team of all LGBTQ superheroes, uh, which has just um, launched its second season uh, exclusively through Comicsology Originals, um, who also just um, uh, upgraded, I guess, or, or upscale, I, I don't know, <laughs> um, for the original seasons. Uh, from independent the independent submitted line to Comicsology originals as well, uh, making them more accessible and available than they've ever been before. Um, also hoping to actually start uh, a Kickstarter again next month, we're aiming for, um, for Acceptable Losses, uh, which is a one-shot, which we tried to run in December, which I learned the hard way is the worst possible time you can run a Kickstarter. Um, so we're basically <laughs> another shot in the summer. Um, so yeah, that, that's me. Um, and that's what I do, and hopefully a lot more if uh, anyone is willing to send me work. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome both to the show. It's, it's so glad to speak to you. Um, happy to finally get uh, a chance to sit down with you both because we had a few technical difficulties last week, um, <laughs> but hopefully we're uh, we're all all ready to raring to go this week. Um, but um, but Joe, well, I'll start with you. Congratulations mm-hmm. on uh, the Pride uh, season two starting on Comicsology Originals, as you've uh, as you said. Um, you. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about it because as you say like it's um it's almost they've all gone through a, a revamp haven't they like you've you've uploaded them all to comiXology originals now so it's all um as you say easier to access there's kind of a is there a bit of a revamp so like there's the the previous issues are now under season one yeah it's kind of a bit of like a, a revamp and a rebranding a little bit um just to make it not just it kind of to make it obvious but obviously it's a whole new ball game now with um, Comicsology Originals, but also to make it accessible to people who maybe don't generally go to comic shops and buy comics on a regular, um, maybe don't necessarily buy into like, the ideas of volumes and printings and everything like that, maybe just like want a straightforward idea of where do I start season one, it's a mm. good way to pray, uh, put it. Uh, also, we split the C- uh, the two series, The Pride and Pride Adventures, to make it a little bit easier so that people know Pride is the main 
story, plus you have Pride Season 1 and now Season 2, and Pride Adventures being like the anthology series with more short self-contained stories. So like it just is a way of kind of making it a little bit easier, a little bit more all together, and just give people a bit of a more straightforward vibe into understanding where to begin um, if they've never heard of a Pride before. Um, obviously the Season 1s, um, as they are, um, are, like I say, a slight restructuring of what was our original self-published um, trade paperback and previously hardcover. Um, and the Pride Adventures 5 is also now part of the Pride Adventures Season 1 collection. Um, just as I say, to everything that's happened before this whole Comicsology Originals deal is now part of it as well in a way which people can easily access and understand. Yeah, it's uh, it's like perfect really because i've followed you through uh your kickstarter campaigns i've followed like the the pride adventures the the single issues which uh Cena, you had a hand in on one of the issues as well didn't you yeah yeah i got to um work with a, a friend of mine for that I've, I've secretly collaborated with but it, it never came out uh john cairns <laughs> and now you have him he's he's living in a he's living on on your side of the the pond <laughs> <laughs> We're not giving him back. <laughs> I get it. I get it. He's too good. But yeah, so, so Pride season one is is awesome. Pride Adventures has got you know so many different types of story, um, all different like uh, one shots and and fun stuff in there as well. What's um what's inspired you for season two? What's made you come back for for more? Um, well, it, it was very much a case of, I mean, I had loads of stories anyway, but Pride, I could probably keep on telling stories for Pride for years to come. Um, but there's also the idea that I got my six issue main story arc and then like there were five issues of, uh, as we say, short self-contained stories. And even with all that, I can't touch everything. Like every part of the LGBTQIA spectrum, it's so broad and so diverse um, that nine characters or main characters at the very least still doesn't cover everyone um and i kind of wanted that to be one of the main goals of the pride is is to try and give everyone the chance even if just for a few panels um to see themselves in the book and be the hero in a medium they love um so yeah like the next volume i'm sorry next season um is bringing in um a bunch of new sort of aspects of the community um also i wanted to look at intersectionality a little bit more so uh, including diversity and representation beyond the LGBTQ spectrum as well. Um, so like we're adding a bit more things like neurodiverse people through disabled characters and just sort of building on that a little bit to show that world outside our window is incredibly diverse. So why are our spandex wearing superheroes all straight white size dudes? Um, mm. So yeah, that's kind of what kind of pushed me to just keep on doing it. Yeah, I mean, that's it's a super important message to send out. I mean, now more than ever when... You know the comics landscape is expanding you know and the comics fandom is changing as well you know it's mm. it isn't you know i don't think it ever has been just straight white dudes but at the oh, same cool. time you know it's more and more diverse voices that are speaking out about their love of comics as well mm -hmm. how much kind of how much pressure do you feel you know how much pressure do you put on yourself to to get that kind of thing right in the comics um i mean quite a lot i mean like it's one of those things where you do one of the things I learned pretty early on is you're never going to please everyone. Um, and that doesn't mean you don't try. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's still going to be people out there who aren't feeling fully like it's their story. And obviously everyone really wants to see their story show. Mm. Um, 
And I think the best I do is, like I say, I, I try my best. I try to research as much as I can when it's particularly when it's using uh, identities um, and sexualities, which I'm not myself a part of. Um, but at the same time, like I say, try to do research, try to come at it from an angle of what aspects I can relate to as well. Um, but also do lots and lots of, um, uh, oh, God, I've forgotten the words, Give, getting readings from people who are <laughs> part of those communities. Um, sensitivity readings, that's what I was looking for. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, like there's been quite a few sensitivity readings. Um, there's been quite a few on this volume because um, latter half of this uh, season is actually going to focus quite heavily on one of the trans characters in the series. Um, so, obviously, I myself am not trans, I'm a slightly gender guy. So, I wanted to make sure that the way I was tackling it was quite um, uh, thought out and it's still going to be a dramatic element that I wanted it to be there and not fall too deeply into any kind of tropes. Um, and similarly, we, we did a lot of um, back and forth with a few um, uh, asexual uh, sensitivity readers who um, handled one of the characters who actually introduced in uh, the first issue, which just launched. Um, of season two, uh, Hyperon, who is our first uh, asexual character um, in the Pride. Yeah, I think it's I think it's so important to have this, as I say. And and Sina, you've had experience with this as well. You know, with uh, with Iceman and being you know having the responsibility of taking this decades old character and exploring his sexuality and and this kind of new um, this new awakening in him as a character. How much responsibility did you feel going into that? I had to get so many sensitivity readers to land all the straight characters voices <laughs> in that book you don't even know you don't even know no um no i like you know i i say everything with a joke because the book is you know it's a humor book um but i took it very seriously i remember i mean and joe like was a witness to a lot of this and also a, a very valuable resource to like figure out who to talk to and 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 who you can sort of um, have these pretty sensitive conversations with and and know that they sort of stay within the bubble of, of people. But it, yeah, and a couple people volunteered to be sensitivity readers. There was a joke I had, that made it to print in the second issue and it was a little tone deaf on my end. And it was, you know, just, it, it, it was a, it was like a Ninja Please reference. Mm -hmm. um, and, and even though, I, you know, like I could find as many friends of color who would tell me like, eh, don't worry about it. I was still like, yeah, but I have like just as many friends of color telling me eh, that is pretty, it's a pretty dumb joke and it's pretty like in poor taste. Mm. Um, and so I, I was happy that I, I was able to make that decision myself to be like, all right, let's fix that joke uh, for the trade because uh, I'm not comfortable with it now that I know what I know. Um but yeah, I took it really seriously and, and, and mainly just tried to defend myself uh, by way of having incredibly authentic stories in there. So a lot of the, you know, vulnerable conversation scenes uh, throughout the series, because it's about this X-Man who comes out of the closet, um, you know, and, and, and he has so many ex-girlfriends. Uh, you know, he has some pretty like raw conversations with his family and his chosen family and his uh, you know, past lovers. And I just really tried to reach uh, from the well of conversations I've had with, you know, actual friends, actual family, and 
and sort of my other gay dudes in my life, like things that happened to them. Because at the end of the day, I can stand by myself and be like, this was the story of a guy in his late 20s, early 30s coming out. And I had about three people I knew in mind when I wrote his voice who also came out in their late 20s and 30s. So you can't tell me I'm not being authentic. Um, you know, that being said, critic like everything's up for criticism. Uh, also, I know that some people are over that whole trope of feeling shame about coming out. But, you know, I stood by the fact that, well, not everyone's there. Like, not mm-hmm. everyone is ready. And yeah. this book is for those people. And, you know, uh, as the series evolved, it became it, it became different. He, he got more comfortable in his skin. And there was less and less shame surrounding his identity and more and more empowerment and love and uh, compassion. Yeah. Honestly, Damn, I said that really well. Hold on, I need to give myself credit. That was a run-on <laughs> sentence that I, worked. I was going to say, I did check whether we were still recording. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to send him that as a, as a soundbite. That's great. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 totally true because like at a certain point, it's it is still your story to tell. So although people like can't be like, oh, yo, that's not how I would have done it, or like, oh, I, I don't really agree with how this was done. If if you're still really telling an authentic story and want something that is authentically giving the message that you're trying to tell um it is ultimately your story at the end of the day and then you 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 learn from things as you go as well and like say you get absolutely i think it was awesome that you were able to make changes um when it came to the trade but like when someone comes to sometimes just like oh well i would have done it differently or i would have told a different kind of story that's awesome and that's true but maybe that's not the story i'm telling kind of thing so sometimes there is a that criticism is valid but it also needs to be taken with a pinch of salt in the sense of consider the story that is being told. And like, if it's a case of that's not the way you would have told it, then you know, but there's pen and paper out there. You can write your own, you know? Um, And everyone has a valid story to tell. I always, whenever someone comes to me uh, at a con and just like, how do I write comics or anything like that? One of the first things is just say, you know, just start writing. Like, you know, everyone's got a story to tell um, and only you are going to tell your story your way. So, but it comes an element where, yeah, you have just got to let let it run with it. And I think that's why it's it's so important. You know, it, it's you both, you know, you've both worked hard and you've both brought characters to the page that represent, you know, a section of of the community that has been underrepresented in comics in 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 the past. But I think it's it's as important to have representative creators behind the scenes as well because you know you've both talked about you've been able to bring either your own experiences or listen to the experiences of you know friends and family and and bringing that into the page and in a way that you wouldn't necessarily get if you know if it was just straight white dudes sat behind the computer just just writing away these different characters um i think it's important to have that kind of diversity behind the scenes as well is what i'm uh, is what i'm getting at I well, think... if I may, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. I will. <laughs> um, I will. <laughs> I will. I will add to it too. In that, you know, like think something I encountered was if it's someone who's not in a position to speak um, for a character when they're doing a you know highly sensitive story uh, that requires a bit of a careful hand, um, I've noticed that they will just sort of stop at oh, well, this person told me what I was doing is fine, so I can keep doing it. And, and that'll be my defense when, uh, you know, there, there's flack. And, and there was some stuff that happened 
and other X-Men books while I was writing there where they would ask me about it and they were like, so is this going to get us in trouble or whatever, you know, whatever version of saying that. And I offered my feedback and then I said, but I'm one person. Like you need to talk to like two to three other people. Like you need to like really get a couple perspectives on this. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think the difference between someone who's in a position of kind of casual privilege or, um, and I don't mean this as aggressively as it sounds, but like ignorance where, (laughs) Like, I knew well enough that I needed to ask a bunch of people, and I knew well enough that if if something, you know, rang falsely to even one or two folks, like, that was enough for me to really check myself in terms of keeping, um, you know, a dumb joke or a potentially tropey story beat, um, especially with, like, a character like Doc Hen, who's bisexual, you know, there's that huge kind of thing of like, oh, hey, like uh, the bisexual person cannot be trusted. They're always changing sides. And mm-hmm. um, on the one hand, I was trying to su- I was like, oh, should I subvert that? But then on the other hand, I was like, this isn't Doc Hen's DNA. Like this is he's going to be that trope, you know, after I play with him. He's been that trope before I played with him. Like, I'm just going to use him how I need to use him. But like I was able to make that decision knowing kind of to do the research and to, and to have the, the hard conversations with myself, you know, much less other people. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, and I think that some straight white dudes don't always go there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right to to say that because I think it's, it's something that you have it just having an, an openness and an awareness and an acceptance. And I think one of the things that we struggle with in in comics or especially in kind of social media presence is this is this reluctance to be open to criticism um or this kind of shutting down and you know putting on blast people that just don't agree or saying oh you need to you need to read it to understand it whereas there's a lot of voices out there that are that are rightly frustrated because they've had you know years of people you know be portraying them in a certain way as you say with the certain you know, unintentionally or not, negative tropes and stereotypes for these characters. And so, you know, we've got a fan base now that is is diverse and is passionate and they want their voices to be heard. And I think it's, you know, it's important that we embrace that and everyone, you know, everyone learns from that as well, which is which is the way to go, really. But but you've uh, you've seen you've got um, you mentioned in your intro you've got uh, Jughead's Time Police uh, coming out uh, as this uh, podcast goes up. It'll be coming out tomorrow. Um, and uh, you've also got Ghosted in LA that's coming out in July, um, and you're also taking over or helping out writing duties on Go Go Power Rangers. Uh, with yeah, issue co-writing, 21. co-writing, co-writing yeah. Uh, with um, in uh, in July when that comes out as well. Um, so, I mean, first question: How do you have the time for all of these projects? Oh, I can't <laughs> even. I can't even get myself out of bed some days. So, you know, let, let alone have three projects on the go. Uh, you're also forgetting that I'm doing a Haunted Mansion graphic novel. Uh, <laughs> I, even, I knew I didn't even cover everything. I knew there was more. <laughs> I didn't say it, but I mean, no, well, eh, I don't know. I don't know how she does it. Um, I learned, well, okay, so I think for all of us here, uh, there is this, like, uh, unquenchable desire to be a part of comic books in a real significant way. And for me, that started at a super young age. Um, So when I was in high school, I was interning at Top Cow Productions, you know, taking the bus there. Uh, I'd work summers at the local comic store. 
then I'd make zines or comics or strips or whatever. And then, I'd, you know, then I'd also have to learn how to draw and do all my homework and do extracurriculars and try to get into college and pass my exams. Um, and I think from a very young age, I learned uh, the importance of multitasking. And then uh, in my late 20s, I learned the value of saying no and, and saying yes to the right things. And so uh, it's all about time management. And then on top of that, because I, I do know how to draw, I think, I think I work a lot quicker as a writer than some of my, my colleagues do just because uh, I, have, I have a shorthand between my brain and my hand and my eyes that maybe some other writers don't have. And it takes them a bit longer to tell an artist what's going on in their head where I can just sort of like, I can see it in my head, I can sketch it out. And if I'm too lazy to even type it out, I can send the drawing to the artist and be like, like this, from, you know, from this perspective. And so that I think that's that's how it works. And then, you know, I was thinking about this the other night because uh, I do on my Instagram stories have a highlight that's like writing tips. And and I'm like, yeah, but am I actually like giving anyone legitimate insights into how they can be better writers? And uh, there's a formal mode of note taking that like teachers are starting to implement, uh, they've been implementing over the past 10 to 15 years. And it, it's very like bullet point driven where you're really breaking down. Uh, I don't remember the exact name of it, but it's all about like bullet point, side point, bullet point, side point, like lead sentence. And um, I think how I draft my, my outlines is very much that and it helps keep me organized. And it helps me remember what I was thinking when, you know, I might have taken a note at 1030 on a Monday night, but then I have to write the script Thursday afternoon, not speaking from experience right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're recording this on a Thursday afternoon for me. For you guys, it's like very late. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just, uh, you know, because the the one thing I I am very familiar with is that there might not be, you know, there, you might not get asked to dance uh, the next cotillion or or uh sadie hawkins or other american themed um <laughs> dance event but you know so i don't you know like i got a dance card today but i don't know if i'm gonna have it tomorrow so it's just kind of one of those like survival things too where you're like you just got to do the work because it might not be here tomorrow and you mentioned um you know knowing the right projects to say yes to so tell me about jughead's time please why was that why was that an instant yes for you was that something that someone came up to you with or was that something you approached archie about I had reached out to an editor at Archie Comics just being like, I love Archie from an aesthetic level down to um, the core story values uh, that sort of the Riverdale crew represent outside of the TV show Riverdale. Um, that's much more pulpy. And so for, and, and for everyone listening, including you, Joe Glass, um, it takes years of like, it takes years for these plants to flower oh, um, of, of watering these goddamn plants. Um, <laughs> so it took a few years, you know, of me talking to uh, Alex Segura over there. And uh, I tried, you know, and I told him a couple areas of interest. I, Jughead was one of them. And I was like, I love Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Um, I also love the horror line, but I'm not really a good horror writer. I'm a horror writer. Horror <laughs> writer. Um, and so 
finally one day he was like, well, what do you think? Cause I, you know, and every couple months you go, Hey, like I'm always interested in more opportunities. And finally he was like, well, what do you think about Jughead's time police? And I was like, I think I could go down that alley. I can go down that rabbit hole. And I've always related to Jughead. Um, we're very much sort of these, the same kind of like, uh, mellow glutton who could probably <laughs> do far much more if he wasn't so interested in hanging out with his friends and eating food. Um, and, uh, so like looking at that and looking at what had been done with, uh, the previous stories, uh, I was like, Oh yeah, I think I've got a take on this. And, and what's fun about Jughead in particular is like the stakes. It's a different, you're playing with stakes differently. Like an earlier version was like hot dog gets hit by a car and Jughead, builds time travel and actually it was my editor at go go power rangers daphna plebin she was the one who was like no 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 like no jughead can't have real stakes like it's a jughead book it's supposed to be funny like mm. that is way too dark and archie said that too but the the way she said it she was like she just understood the character she's like a jughead book can't have like legitimate stakes so it was like oh yeah he like loses a pie baking contest and like <laughs> is so shattered that he creates time travel like he breaks yeah. time travel to like you know, uh, fix his like pie mishap. Um, and there's a sort of wackiness that, that works. And, uh, and again, yeah, I love, I love happy characters. Like I love characters who, uh, are, are sort of like, you know, net positive beings in this world. And, and he's, yeah, he taps into that for me. He's very much a great, like next step after Iceman, just in that, like, yeah, He's yeah. a cool dude. I'm a cool dude. Um, <laughs> and it's a good and it's a good way to kind of also transition people into being like, I can just I feel like I'm a good writer, not a good writer of like queer characters, because um, from my standpoint, Jughead sexuality isn't like on the table in this story. It's about pies, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is how Jughead lives his life anyway. Yeah, that's been my take. And, and, and I know that there are fans who have opinions and. It's just my take. I'm like, that's my read. He's just got other things to think about. Yeah. And I think what I love about when I heard the announcement is because Jughead's Time Police is such a such a bizarre concept. Like, I don't know about you, Joe, but in England, we didn't we don't really have that much exposure with Archie comics. And we certainly don't have like the kind of the nostalgic Americana affinity for it that obviously, you know, is so prevalent in the US with oh, totally. that kind like, of thing. I know so um, many people who so will. Uh, acknowledgement and understanding of the Archie universe is Riverdale. Yeah. And to tell them that like the comics are actually nothing like that, mm-hmm. um, or at least were originally nothing like that, and are like this complete idea of Americana, it's it's very much a cultural thing, like which we didn't really get here in the UK for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's growing here. I think Archie's becoming a weirdly popular book here in the UK now. Yeah. Um, because like it's the Americana thing is obviously Riverdale and Sabrina and the fact that the new Sabrina books are obviously a bit more like the TV, the new TV show and everything. And it's just all kind of like hitting a really whole new level here in the UK than it ever did before, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I think I think because of that, like I, I, in America, the Archie digests are in every kind of supermarket or everything. Or that's, you know, that's what I'm led to believe anyway. Um, But over here, I was just kind of found them in 
in back issue bins and just kind of randomly coming across them. So I think it must have been about five or six years ago or even even longer, really, because it was before the new Archie kind of uh, afterlife with Archie started kicking off and it started Archie as a line became a bit more rejuvenated. Mm -hmm. Um, It was way before that. And I come across like a few old Jughead's time police and I just had to kind of pick them up because they're so ridiculous that you just kind of you're drawn to them it's like Silver Age Superman like covers you just like you look at it you go I have to know what's happening in that comic Um, and so to hear that that as a concept is coming back um, I mean did you have to do much reading on previous time police Cena before you started before you dove into it or was the concept kind of broad enough for you to go yeah I've got a grasp on this they to my knowledge, and if I'm wrong, whoopsies, uh, to my knowledge, I think most every Time Police story was collected uh, recently. So I ordered that book uh-huh. and, and dove through it. And the main thing that I gleaned from it was like, oh, they just keep going to the past. That's so boring. <laughs> like, I get it. But also, like, that's what everyone does. Mm-hmm. And maybe there was a part of me being like, okay, girl, listen, like, this is your thing after Iceman, you need to like show people like you've got an imagination on you and that you can like tell a crazy dynamic story. So maybe it came from from that part of of my brain, like needing to challenge myself. But I was just so much more interested in the future in, in them being in the 29th century. And, and not in the sense of like, oh, not I, I just didn't want to like, I didn't want to go the path that most time travel stories take. And I think that's what I was doing more than overanalyzing the previous time police stories. I was overanalyzing just time travel and pop culture in general and uh, asking myself what I liked about Bill and Ted versus, you know, what I like or don't like about Back to the Future or Looper or any of that stuff. And so um, it's more of a send up, I think, of all of that. And and similarly, too, I think it's an examination of like pop culture in comic. I mean, pop culture. It's an examination of time travel in comic books. Like uh, there are a couple of sort of like nods to X-Men's way complicated relationship with timey wininess. Yeah. And um, and, I, and a little bit with DC as well. Like it was funny. I was talking to a DC editor and he was like, well, watch out what you say. And I, and I was like, no, 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 this is all I say. And he's like, oh, that's funny. Yeah, we'll like that. <laughs> I like, yeah. like, I was like, I love comics. I'm not, like, I'm, if I'm going to rib you, it's not a roast. Um, yeah. So that was really where my head went, was just sort of like, what would be a really, like, A, and also I think um, the only concrete thing that kind of sticks from all of the Time Police stories, whether it's Chip Zdarsky's run or the, you know, sort of random Archie backups, um, is January McAndrews. And so that was kind of fun for me to be like, who is she? Like, who is she actually? Um, And it's really great, too, because I think as a gay man, I'm able to be like, well, clearly she's infatuated with him, but with Jughead, but maybe it's not necessarily romantic. And I always like playing that fine line of like, okay, clearly, like, like, this is like she, she her her motivations are led and run by a man and his actions but how is that different than a sexist trope and and so that's kind of the the fine line I'm playing with um and I think it's you'll see you know and I think it's her discovering that 
that is the key difference between, say, me and, like, I don't know, a, 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 a less nuanced dude. <laughs> <laughs> Treading that fine line very carefully. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like a lot of times when I'm on discussion panels at conventions, I will start a sentence and I can feel the people sitting next to me tensing up being like, oh, no, what is he? How did that sentence come out of him? Okay. Um, can I tell you guys a really funny consent joke that uh, passes with flying colors? <laughs> I didn't make it. I didn't make it. It's this girl, Claire O'Kane. I saw this years ago and I tell it all the time because I think it's hilarious. It's like a broad city joke. So I'll tell you and then we'll talk about comics and okay. we'll talk about Joe. Um, <laughs> so she has this really funny bit in her stand-up where she looks at the audience deadpan and says, the only time it's okay to say she was asking for it is in response to the question, why did we buy Claire a gift certificate to Outback Steakhouse? <laughs> Am I right? Am I? It yeah. passes. It's nerve wracking, but it passes. Yeah, yeah. I, love it. I, mean, it. Be, I mean, I shouldn't say it as a dude, but like when she said it, I was just like, if she was like a drag queen, I would have been throwing tens at her. Like, yeah. <laughs> it takes you down a dark road and then it lights up, lights the whole scene up at the end. Yeah, it's yeah. brilliant. But you mentioned in your intro, Joe, that you've got a Kickstarter coming up in about a month. Uh, what yeah. can you tell us about that? So um, it's Acceptable Losses, which uh, is a one shot. It was kind of primarily started because, in a sense of like, um, I've obviously been doing Pride now for 10 years, more or less, um, on some level or way. So I want, and that's what I'm primarily known for is um, a mixture of Pride uh, and that particular sort of all ages kind of accessible, fun, bright, superhero stories kind of thing, but also from when I was a commentator on the industry and everything, and my time as a comics journalist, um, sort of known for having particular sort of interest in representation and stuff like that. But I wanted to do a book to show that it, I can do like other things. So it's a very dark um, political thriller, um, one shot, so literally just a one and done, which I just really want to put out there to show that. Um, and I'm working with like a really awesome team uh, a really stunning artist named Danny Flores, um, and Moose Bowman's uh, doing the colours, and Mike Stock, my ever-suffering letterer, is doing the lettering. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's just kind of wanting to do something quite different from what I'm known for. Um, and we tried it before in December, which primarily came from the fact that um, I'd been so focused on sorting and setting up this whole um, the Pride of Comicsology kind of stuff, that I'd completely forgotten to check in with Danny and it turned out he'd like drawn half a book already. And I was like, oh crap. Um, <laughs> so um, then I was just like, oh God, we, we were in a Kickstarter like now. And by that time it was like December. Um, and I was just like, I'm sure it'd be fine. Like, you know, the money's not going to come out until after Christmas. So it'd be fine. <laughs> no, December is the worst time to run a Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that. What, what's... Um... I've never, obviously, I've never run a Kickstarter. So what's, like, what's um, some of the, like, kind of worst and best times for running the Kickstarter? Why is that? It's really weird stuff. It's, it's, they're probably much smarter people than me who've done much in more intense studying to it all. Um, but, like, weird, weird things you, little, you sort of pick up is, like, there are certain days of the week where it's not a good idea to launch a Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. um, and generally it's things like, don't launch a Kickstarter on a Monday. 
um, because everyone's going back to work. No one's looking at Kickstarter. Um, don't launch a Kickstarter if it's a comic Kickstarter on a Wednesday necessarily, because everyone's going to the comic shop. Um, no one's necessarily going to Kickstarter. Now, obviously, these aren't like hard and fast rules, and sometimes it's flexibility in them each way. But like I say, it's it's there are little things like that which you notice. Um, I think someone was telling me this: you shouldn't launch a Kickstarter on a Tuesday in the AM or something because <laughs> no one is on social media at that time or something. Oh wow! Um, and I'm just like that is something I would never have considered. Mm. Um, but it's like Kickstarter itself has like loads of hints and tips on what's a good timing, what's good to have, and stuff like that. Um, with acceptable losses, like I said, we were the first time we run a Kickstarter. We we rushed it down to Kickstarter because I I got anxious, and um, December's just not a good time. Everyone's more concerned with I want to buy Christmas presents, so they need to think like I haven't got the money to put into a book, which I'm probably not going to see for six months or more, you know, kind of thing. Um, so like that totally makes sense. Like December's not a great time. Um, January's a pretty good for small Kickstarters because um, that tends to be when Kickstarters they like make one hundred thing. Um, so they're pretty good. I think I did a small one. I can't remember what it was for right now. Oh, an enamel pin. I made an enamel pin, which we did like a hundred pieces of um, as part of the Make One Hundred, and that was a pretty successful campaign because um, I was just like a little short. I think we only did it for like two, three weeks mm. um, campaign, which was just to make this little thing, you know. Um, oh. But then generally, if you're doing like a big Kickstarter for like a book, um, spring to summer months are pretty good. Uh, the fall is not too bad, um, but generally stay out of winter, I would say. Um, mm. Or at least that's been my experience with comics side. Yeah. Uh, there have been people I know who run comics Kickstarters, though, in the winter months and actually done fine. It does all depend on your budget, you know? Yeah. If what you're looking to raise is like a very small amount, you'll probably be fine. Um, yeah. But like if you're looking to raise the budget to actually pay everyone um, on the team, then yeah, you're probably gonna have a larger goal amount. So yeah, you're gonna probably need to have a stronger um time of year to really sort of hit it. So that's why we're now looking at July. Um summer month. I've done Kickstarters in July before, which have been very successful. So sticking with what I know. Yeah. Um we're trying to get a few more pages colored so we have a bit more stuff to show. We've got a cover and we've got a new pinup, uh, which will probably be the back of the book kind of thing. Um, so yeah, we we got a bit more to show this time, I think, which I think people will respond to a lot better than they necessarily did in the December. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of what acceptable losses is. Um, I'm kind of excited for everyone to sort of see it because um, having had this bright, colourful superhero fun story, um, it's going to be really interesting to see what people make of a dark, philosophical, uh, political nightmare superhero story, and see how. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I'm excited to see a different side to your um to your skills, to your creative talents. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Cool. And that's um coming out in, in July. Like yeah, hoping in to July, launch yeah. in July. We haven't we haven't specified a date as yet. Um I've got a fairly busy July coming up. Mm. Um but I'm hoping that probably early July we'll try and launch it. It's just occurred to me, but I think July the fourth is a Thursday, which is a pretty good day to launch Kickstarters. Oh, there we go. That might Independence. Be. <laughs> so maybe maybe keep an eye out for July the fourth. <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, let's move on to the uh, books that I've asked you to bring with you. So um, the uh, the 
one of the big themes of, uh, of That's the Issue podcast is uh, to invite guests on to get to know you through the issues that you love. Um, and so I'd like to invite you to bring with you um, a comic that is important to you or significant to you in some way. Um, so, Sina, we'll start with you. What is the book that you've brought with you today? Well, I brought uh, a copy of Daniel Klaus's Ghost World, um, which ended up becoming uh, a sort of cult favorite movie starring Scarlett Johansson and Thor Birch and Steve Buscemi. Um, yeah. Do you, should I get into it or just... Say what yeah, go, what's um why have you uh, why have you decided to bring this one with you? So when we were talking about uh this and sort of what the goal was, I mentioned a couple books at different points in my sort of burgeoning comics fandom or whatever, and uh it, there were some mainstream books and then this one. Uh, so like it was like oh you know do we do Fathom or Battle Chasers or whatever you know. Because uh, I definitely wanted to stay from stay away from like the big two stuff. Because uh, I think we all have sort of like oh, you know the Dark Phoenix saga meant this to me. Um, but what Joe is about to say after what I say is like a complete exception. Because uh, <laughs> and we're gonna talk about that too. How like I love his what he what he's bringing to the table today. Um, and uh, so Ghost World was one of the first you know not mainstream quote unquote indie graphic novels. I got into and uh, I hadn't read it in years. Um, I own two copies of it because I have one to give out to friends and then one to hold on to. That's like a rare hardcover. And I kind of forgot why it hit me so hard when I was younger. And I wanted to take this opportunity to kind of rekindle with it because when I've done that with other books that are similar, like uh, Adrian Tomina's Shortcomings or Marjan Satrapi's Persepolis or Embroideries, most any of her books. Um, if I reread them every few years, I find I, I rekindle the value and I and I fall back in love and I understand what it meant to me then and, and then what it means to me now. And so I hadn't done that with Ghost World and I wanted to do that uh, today with y'all. Awesome. So how old were you when you first read the book? probably in high school i was working at the comic store high school like like maybe 15 16 um and i i saw the movie before i read the book but i was familiar with eight ball and and would flip through them eight ball is the comic that uh ghost world stories were serialized in um a larger dan Klaus sort of story collection book but um and i think the thing that i valued so much about it was this sort of very like the salty and back to that word like authentic this authentic take on these young girls who uh there it it sort of isn't even about you know the Bechdel test it isn't about uh if if it's feminist or not it's just about these two teenage girls who are dicking around and it's a but it, it also then kind of still reaches this crazy poignant ending at the same time too so it was sort of this take on on friendship, teenage friendship. I don't even want to say female friendship, but it was a take on teenage friendship that uh, I lived but hadn't seen. Um, mm -hmm. And that was what was so exciting, was to just kind of see these two very apathetic teenagers just like flicking anyone off and doing whatever they want and acting like it's not motivated by anything when it's clearly motivated by everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that that was captured really well. Never mind how just like stunning 
I find the artwork to be because it's it can be so simple, but then it can be it can really just sort of uh, hone in on these human details that uh, not many people capture as well as uh, Dan Klaus does. Mm. I think that's that was um, one of my first thoughts, really, was when, you know, you talk about the, you know, the age of how you were when you first read it and how old you are uh, as you like as you grow up and you you revisit the book. Um, do you think how old you were at the time when you first read it helped you to made it more appealing to you? And, you know, did you find it more relatable as they were the same age as you? Um, was it something you kind of you talked about how authentic it was? So did it feel you know real to you at the time as well? Yeah. Well, I was like a weird kid in the sense. I mean, I was <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a weird human, uh, but I was a, I was a weird kid in that like I would always hang out with grownups. You know, again, like I worked at the comic store, and the average age of my coworkers was like you know twenty five to thirty nine, um, and so it I. I just felt like it's like I wasn't listening to the radio hits like I, you know, I wasn't fascinated by the mainstream movies like that. All of that stuff, like me kind of just becoming sort of like being OK with like what the masses are, are vibing with, like happened really recently. But before it was just like, I only want to watch obscure movies and make fun of them with my friends and like get in really codependent relationships with like one best friend where you have this shorthand and your shorthand is really just how you're talking shit about everyone else. Um, and I think when I was, I think when I was younger and engaging with ghost world, it was like, Oh, they're like me and we're so cool. And now that I'm grown up, it's like, I can still see that. I think these kids are still cool, but I also see how they're being like complete immature brats and that they're not really giving a lot of their cast members any benefit of the doubt. And most of the time they're right, you know? Um, mm. But yeah, again, and then it just also goes back to like, he touches on these things that you don't really see many places. Like there's the scene, what I think it's Enid goes to meet, um, a comic artist if it's if i'm not mistaken it is dan claus like yeah i i i reread most of it for this um, yeah i, I think um i think he's called like david claus or something like that so it's a slightly tweaked name but it is it's obviously meant to be him yeah oh yeah and i just like it's, it's page 29 the last panel <laughs> and he just like i think it's this page and he just looks creepy like so creepy and she runs away and decides not to meet him because like she's like never mind gross and yeah I just you know I think it's all the weird small human interactions and how they look at grown-ups and how grown-ups end up being such sad sad people I think there's that a really weird quiet fascination with how 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 an adult can turn out so wrong um that is in this book you know but it's masked because they're making fun of everyone including Melora um so yeah that's what really kind of uh stuck me with the book that stuck with me when reading the book is just sort of you you can see that Enid is like trying to hold on to these like last minutes of of innocence and in, all innocence means is like lack of responsibility because you know these girls are are sexually active and participating in in you know all sorts of things but it's the uh it's very interesting watching Enid mourn the fact that like the childhood she sort of squandered by trying to act like a rebel is like, you know, slipping through her fingers. Did you get a chance to read this show? What did you think? Yeah. It's like 
do you know, uh, it's one of those books where I was aware of it culturally, but I'd actually never read it until, like, last week. So, like, I think for me, I kind of had a slightly opposite reaction. And I kind of feel like, but if I read it the same age but you did see you know when you first read it i would have liked it a lot more for me going into it it was hard to get past the as you say like these girls aren't terribly likable at first you know until much later into the book um when you start to really sort of start to understand like why they're like this and and stuff like that so it took me a little while to get into it um and i think that is one of those things where like i i if i was looking back and thinking what i was like when i was like 15 16 17 I pro- if I'd read it back then, I probably would have loved it um, because I would have related to them so much more. Whereas, mm. like, I didn't have that moment as an adult reading it, like, 34 years old reading it and being like, God, these girls are kind of bitchy. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but what I did feel about it was, like, whether I thought they were, like, relatable or likable to me now was a case of, like, this book was undoubtedly good. Um, it was incredibly authentic and it really captured, like, uh, it was an incredible character study, I thought, and I thought like he really sort of, sort of nailed that aspect of it, and I was just like, this is really great. I kind of feel like it just right now it didn't feel like it was for me. Whereas now, now you've said it like that, I'm kind of feeling like God, if I'd read that back then, I, I probably would have vibed with this a lot harder um, than I did now, kind of thing. Um, so sometimes, I guess maybe it is a showing of a little bit how sometimes. You kind of also have to be hit approaching something at the right time to re- for it to really get to you and get it sort of nailed into you kind of thing, you know? Oh, yeah. I hated, by the way, I hated Fun Home the first time I read it. Mm. Um, and, and it was just because I was a big Dykes to watch out for fan. And so the first time I read it, I was like, oh, boring. Who cares about this family drama? <laughs> and then... Um, and because, you know, Alison Bechdel is so funny and witty and that book is funny and witty, but it's also very serious and sometimes uh, somber. And anyway, mm-hmm. but it took reading it a second time and a third time. The second time I read it for a class mm-hmm. and, and I had to read it going, I'm reading this assuming she's a, like she's a genius and everything is an intentional. And then suddenly by the end of it, I was like, oh, my God, she's genius. Everything is intentional. And that's when I, I found the value. So I'm totally with you where like a book can land the wrong way. If you're either going in with um, mi- like a misguided perception of it or you're just not in the mood or yeah, you're, you're, you're a guy in his thirties and, and, and you're just like, these girls are assholes. <laughs> yeah. but, but I think Dan Klaus knows that like mm. when you're reading the book, I think he knows that. And that's what makes the finish line work for it. Yeah. I think that's why that scene where he self-inserts um, really worked. And like about that scene in particular actually worked for me as well, like even now kind of thing, because it was it was telling a particular moment, which was something you can absolutely relate to, whether you necessarily related to the girls and the general bitchiness or anything. You could agree like with this idea of n- meeting your heroes and that sort of romanticized vision you've had of them. And then when you see them and realize they're just another human being, um and how that kind of kills the whole mood and like that whole section of like my whole sequence i was like oh god yeah I, i've been there <laughs> i've like we've all been there um and i think he could recognize that in himself and i thought that was kind of a really nice touch so it was like there's bits of it absolutely which i could absolutely now like agree with but i think they were primarily the 
I, I almost related to a lot of the weird adults more than I related to the girls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, God, I don't know what that says about me. Yeah. There is a there is an element to it that um that I know that Klaus intentionally plays with is this idea that every all the characters around them, you wonder how how realistic that depiction of them is because I, I think we're seeing everyone else very much through their eyes aren't we and so we're seeing all these ugly adults that and they're so weird and they're so strange but you're right joe in in the sense that when i read it you know i, I read it years ago when the film came out because i remember re- i saw the film first as well and i thought I, ha- I need to read the book of this you know read it almost straight away afterwards um, but i've not picked it up since and so going back again this week to revisit it um i i felt you know, very similar in the sense that, you know, I, I, I did, I don't know whether I'd go so far as to say I related to the adult characters, but I, I, I definitely saw it from that point of view a little bit more in the sense of, well, I don't think these characters are represented fairly because I think we're seeing them through the eyes of teenage girls and how they see them. Um, and it's, it was, it was fascinating to kind of come at it from those two angles, really. Mm. Um, and I also think it's it's a book that, um, you know, we'll talk about this with with your pick as well, Joe. But I think uh, because they both, you know, both of your picks came out very concurrently, really, around 1993, 94. Yeah. Um, and it's it is very representative of that era as well. Oh, I gotcha. think they were both know? very counterculture sort of sort of aspects at the time from very different points of view and different positions mm. but both were like heavily relying on counterculture kind of thing over time and do you think that is something that helps um helps ghost world as it ages or do you think that kind of hinders it in any way it's hard to say because i'm not a generation z person so like part of me would love to think that like oh no yeah totally they'll get it but i'm just like also patently aware like they never lived in the 90s so why would they <sighs> get that aspect of it the, the very sort of um time capsule element of that story yeah. um of both of those stories um it's i think they could because like i think they, they certainly the way it was a really intensely well done character study um i think yeah uh any sort of generation would get that aspect but like the almost how the setting time setting of it is almost a character of its own within the book that might be a little lost on on newer readers, perhaps. I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Well, I think the thing for me about that, if I may, if I may, sure, of course, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> is, one thing I've, <laughs> is one thing I've learned about Gen Z kids is like they are actually super drawn to that era of Gen X culture, not just from an aesthetic standpoint, how they're like stealing a lot of 90s fashion. Um, but they're like kind of fascinated by like, wait, what? You you didn't have cell phones? And instead of thinking like, oh my God, you're so ancient. It's more of, I think, how our generation looked at the 80s as like, that's what you guys wore to party? Like how crazy, like, but like you also still like, you're tapping in, like th- there was still a, a mild fascination by it. Like, mm. I, I think I remember, like I love, you know, like Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion was such a big movie when I was a little kid. And that's all about kind of them in the 80s, you know? And so as a kid, I was always like, the 80s is so cool. And I think that's how kids are looking at the 90s. Like the 90s was so cool. Like, oh my God, you had to have like, spare change to make phone calls like how did you live (laughs) um but i think they i think they look at it 
with sort of like affection and they're endeared by it. The other thing I'll say too is like this book aesthetically uh, is rocking some like the millennial color palette. So that's working for it in mm. 2019. Because what is this? Is this mint? The, the, the color drop? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, think, I think the 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 thing for me about it, I think that the reason I really, you know, I really find an affection for Ghost World is the fact that it captures it captures that age and it captures that time of your life really well and that kind of awkward and and as you say seeing everything nothing matters but then everything matters um kind of feeling that you get as as a bit of an outsider as a bit of a as a bit of an abnormal kid or a bit of you know someone that doesn't feel like they're quite fit in you know no matter how popular or unpopular you were when when you're a teenager that's all you feel isn't it you know and so it, it, i think it, because it captures that universality so well if that if that is a word um it captures that really well and i think it also as as you said joe like the the era that it's it's set in the era that it's written in is is almost another character in itself and i think that that really plays in the book's favor i think because i think if it's went into that half arsed or if it wasn't or it didn't feel authentic enough i think that would kind of date it a lot more than it actually does where i think because it's such it's such a perfect encapsulation of of what it was like in you know mid in mid 90s being a teenager i think that really works in its favor to kind of uh ironically like kind of make it timeless in that sense Does that makes sense yeah yeah i think so <laughs> Well, we've teased yours, uh, your um, choice, Joe, uh, a bit too much now. So let's let's dive into yours. What is the what's the one that you've decided to bring with you? Okay, so what I decided to bring with me is uh, Generation X, Volume One, Issue One. Um, so the original Scott Lodell, uh, Chris Bacho, um version of the series, mm-hmm. um, which kind of I brought it because it was li- I I'd been reading comics like on and off for a while. At that point, like we're talking, like I was going to say, we were talking ninety three, ninety four, because that's when it came out. But technically, because of how I started reading comics here in Britain, it would have been like about ninety six, maybe when okay. I when I first picked it up. Because um, this was before I was starting to go into like comic shops and stuff. So to give a bit of like British cultural in the nineties um, color to it or the story, um, I used to pick up comic books um in the news agent um and news agent is a bit like a kiosk you, you get on the street with all these periodicals and things and what i did they had there was <clears throat> sometimes british reprint magazines which would usually reprint two or three uh, american comics issues in one place um which were like things like called essential x-men um and sometimes they would have the odd us issue um now Back then, there was a British reprint magazine called Amazing X-Men, which would have, like, one uncanny story, and they seemed to generally pick as many self-contained X-Men stories as they could. Mm. And then in the back was Generation X. And that, although I'd been reading comics, like, on and off for a few years before that, that was kind of the first comic which hooked me. That was where I sort of finally went, I love this medium. And I am addicted to this medium and I want to be part of this medium. And it was Generation X that then my my absolute love and obsession from that book, which then went into me starting to look into comic shops and going to comic shops and buying books and collecting Generation X as much as I could. 
Um, to the point that when I started finally going to comic shops, it was nearing the end of its, um, I think it was 75 issues it went on for in the end. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and it was like nearing the end, and it, it meant there was a big gap <clears throat> in my Generation X experience. But then I act, that was the first book I actively went out and went looking for the missing issues, which I hadn't had a chance to read. And I say there's still some out there, like which, I pro- which I'd probably say like I probably haven't read maybe a dozen or so. Generation X issues in that entire run and I still when I get a chance um, get away from my table at Comic Con will try and look out for Generation X comics so for me that's kind of a thing that's a huge particular title for me Um, it was the first group of X-Men I absolutely fell in love with like loved every single character um, except maybe Mondo and Gaia Um, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, yeah so like Gen X for me at issue one was like the first real one to really do it for me what was it about it that you loved so much um it was the kind of weirdness of the car of some of the characters like i think we'd had like the uncanny the, the x-men cartoon for um and obviously i was addicted to that show loved it like greatest theme team that's ever been created but they were like the, the x-men just had cool superpowers you know they like had laser eyes and claws and all that kind of stuff but then you had um gen x who have six feet of extra epidermis and a guy who's blown a massive hole in his face and just has like flames spewing out of him all the time and i was just yeah. like this is so weird and like the aesthetics of it with uh, chris's art as well was just something else entirely so immediately hooked me visually and it was like latching into something in my hindbrain which i just didn't fully understand at that age um, <laughs> i just absolutely adored it and I think story-wise, Gen X issue one is possibly one of the best introductions of a new superhero team that there's ever been written. Mm. Um, so like I said, it's, it's very hard, I think, to introduce new superhero teams and new superhero books. But I think Gen X one really did it masterfully mm. um, and introduced you to all these characters in such a great way. Like everyone has their little moment, has their little scene. You kind of get a feel for each of the characters and you kind of know what they're about um sometimes through like really overt um aspects and sometimes through more subtle things like with Paige Goofrey like who you meet first in the book I think uh yeah she's like on the first page that great big splash where she's running gorgeous and like the one of the first things you get I think it's like the second or third page she has a moment where she says arm um which is like that weird phonetic spelling they always used to do for like to give the idea of um, uh, accents. Oh yeah, accent, which yeah, I, like you're from uh, you're from the American South when you're saying it like that. Yeah, yeah. it's like when you when it's an a h slash um comma m that that um and but then she stops <laughs> herself and repeats then i correct spelled correctly and that told you so much about the character. Like you immediately knew. Oh right, she's a bit of a tryhard. She's trying to not be where she's come from. And that was super relate- relatable, I thought. Like, to me, being growing up in, like, South Wales Valleys and feeling like I want to get out of this place, I feel too big for this place as a teenager kind of thing, I immediately was just like, right, I totally get this character. I'm, I'm on board. And I think Gen X1 was just superbly well done for that. Yeah, you got to, like, give that book so much credit. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because it's um, it also does such a great job of, of in certain places when they can't show where they just have to tell what's happening mm-hmm. 
you know, because the half of these characters were were introduced uh, sort of in an X Men storyline mm. uh, a couple months prior, and then some of them are all new. And the way they catch the reader up on like their skill set and background, like it's so casual, but it and it and it's it's not that like the art doesn't get overwhelmed by the like lettering you know even though there are a lot of words per page and a lot of information gets thrown at the reader um because yeah you're you're inter you get you really are are given like six to seven ensemble characters introductions and they all get a semi-splash page um and it and it manages to work it really does and it's it's conversational and i remember reading it uh this morning rereading it and being like wow like like oh nothing really happens this issue you just meet the cast and then like 14 pages in it's like oh wait no right there was like this huge fight and like chamber does this thing and like it's not is that yeah and plate's the bad guy's name right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah and like he's like super creepy super scary Mm -hmm. um and then you just learn so much about like how each of the characters is gonna fit in based on like even like m's interaction with emma frost and how that's like that fight was diffused and then it ends on like a crazy eerie cliffhanger and i think it's all like scott lobdell gets points but it's also like chris bacallo really just every page is is a story within itself and his imagination in that book is like I think that might have like he I mean he's had so many kind of high points in his career but I don't think I've ever seen him kind of like knock it out the park that way as as he did with like that first issue like I think it was like he was finally finding this groove and then and then gave it to Generation X Mm -hmm. There are like mm. so many depths of details in every single panel of every single page in that comic that I could literally still pour over it and just be like, God, I can't believe what is in here. Like all the little sort of little um, hidden little things he's put in there as well. And it's just it's amazing to look at. And and the designs of the characters, I think, are just so striking. Like you say, penance at the end, like. You don't really know anything about her, but like from that last page splash, and you just you just think like I need to know more about her immediately. Like she's this yeah. weird red spiky girl covered in bandages. Like what the hell is that about? And you just immediately want more. So it's like he did that whole hook for a series so well. Um, but like it, like I say for my God, what it must have been like say ninety six, so about twelve year old mind. It was just like, yeah, I'm hooked. That's it. I, I'm done. I'm entirely Gen X forever. Uh, I remember being so upset, but really hoping that I could actually be uh, part of Generation X, like the real world version, just to say that I was Generation X at the time. <laughs> um, and just be like, oh, because it's so, so cool. And, um, but yeah, it was just that book meant a lot. And the, it's like I say, I always sort of view it as like, that is what led me down this path to where I'm doing now and superhero stories and being obsessed with superheroes and what they can mean um, and like wanting to be part of that medium. It's it's very much entirely Generation X's fault. Um, still playing Ben. And <laughs> I remember actually I uh, went to San Diego 2014 um, and I was talking to a guy in a bar and I, I, I'll be honest, it was so loud. It was one of those like post-con things. Everyone was there. 
and I've been talking to this guy with someone else um, for a good 15 minutes. And he told me his name maybe three times and I hadn't, I just couldn't hear him over the thing. So I did that thing where you're just like, oh, cool, right. Um, and then you <laughs> went and I turned to my friend and was like, who was that? And he's like, oh, that's Scott Lodell. And I was just like, what the hell? Oh, and like, no. He actively went running after him to stop him so that I could just say to him, look, I'm like really sorry to stop you again. I didn't actually catch your name earlier because it's so loud in here, but I just wanted to thank you because if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be making comics now. Yeah, um, I'm here because of you. Yeah, and it, it, like that felt like it, it was kind of an awesome moment to say to him because, like I say, the that comic does to this day mean so much to me because, like I say, if it weren't for that, I don't think I would be telling this the stories I tell now. Mm. I mean, I think you read a lot of, you know, we all read a lot of first issues, but I think there's something about this issue. Um, I didn't read it as um, as early as you. I think the first time I read this was probably about three or four years ago, actually. But I went back and revisited it this last week mm. and it almost seems genetically engineered to grab you as a fan because mm. it's. It like the the storyline is is called Third Genesis, which obviously plays on the kind of the X Men uh, Second Genesis, which was the the introduction of Wolverine and Storm and 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 Colossus there and Nightcrawler. Um, but you know this is you know it's it's a new generation. Uh, it's the new it's the next like iteration of of the X Men, so to speak. But as um, as you said, Cena, like Chris Bachelow's art. Um, each character is introduced in such a an iconic way. It's like it, each one's a pinup almost mm-hmm. of this character, um, and they're introduced like they're rock stars. They're all you know their poses. Some of them are like Jubilee is just sat there, um, like pointing at a watch, but she's oh yeah, she's, but don't there's... forget her like big like uh, slippers. Well, her big... Slippers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's it. There's so there's so much about that pose, and there's so much about that character that you can tell just from looking at her. It's mm. perfect. Um, and similarly with all the others, when he, when each one of those are introduced, they're all introduced like they're rock stars. Mm. Um, and it's so it grabs you, and it does. It has to do two things, really, doesn't it? It has to establish the team, and it has to introduce or reintroduce these characters to you because some of them it's their first appearance, as you said, Cena, but some of them like. Much like Wolverine and Nightcrawler and Storm from the you know from the previous Genesis, um, you know they've potentially had appearances, brief appearances here or there, but this is their first real outing, um, and um, and it really shows. It's a it's a it's a brilliant first issue. I could see why it grabbed you, Joe, and I could see why it kind of turned you into a fan because it is, you know, it is it's a very strong first issue for for the series and also for you as a comic reader to to pick up on. Oh god, yeah. And like, if if I ever finally convince Marvel that they've got to hire me to write an X book, I, honest to God, will want, be desperately begging to do Generation X. Yeah. Um, just because I love those characters, I have so many ideas on ways to take them. Uh, now and everything, it's just one of those things. It's just like it's because it's so ingrained in what became my love of the whole medium, um, and the superhero genre as a whole. But yeah, it was just like to like say twelve, thirteen year old mind. Um, I it just immediately grabbed me, and I think as well was also speaking a little bit to sort of the burgeoning sort of an understanding of my own sexuality at the time. Um, because like some of these characters, um, not so much in this issue, but in later issues, 
would begin to sort of discuss these very um, well handled, I think, for the time, um, metaphorical takes, which were very queer, um, which I don't think gets um, given enough credit for, because like I said, there were some very queer moments in that series, particularly early on. Um, the first issue, I, maybe, I don't think there's maybe an awful lot in there, other than possibly the idea of like, some of those characters are clearly putting up a facade. Mm. Um, so that people can't get close to them, um, and like that immediately, I suppose that kind of hooked into that aspect, which of something I might not have even been aware of, subcon- but subconsciously was there, and I was just like, I get this, I understand, because I know what it's like to be putting up that facade. Um, so like characters like M or or Hus, like although not naturally the ones I, I'm gravitated to towards, like I, I still was gravitating towards them. I think that's been an important aspect of X-Men generally, hasn't it, really? to You know, they've always played with that idea of of being an analogue for uh, underrepresented aspects of culture or, um, you know, or, or um, a minority that is being, you know, hated and feared as as their slogan is, you know. So I think it's I think it's a crucial part of, of every X-Men series to have something that, that grabs you like that. Mm-hmm. And I think even when it's... Um, you know, it could be related to a different, you know, they could be using an analogue for something else. But as you said, as as someone, you know, a preteen like yourself, like coming into these feelings and emotions yourself and not knowing what to do with them, you finding these aspects of these characters to grab onto mm-hmm. um, is crucial, really. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. also technically the other thing which will always be um, in my memory, I suppose, Generation X um, 1 leading into for me was actually the first time I ever saw my name in print. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, like I say, this amazing X-Men book thing, which like was reprinting them. Uh, they had like a letters page um, and I actually wrote one, an actual physical letter. Um, <laughs> used to actually do those kids. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I actually wrote physical letter into the magazine. Um, and one of the sections in the letters page was like asking questions um, and they will answer them. And I like asked them the question of how it was that Chambers... Um, chest and face almost seemed to come back when he was wrapped up in bandages mm. um so that it was still shit and we gave like this whole very much x-men-y answer it was a bioelectric field which mimics the shape of his chin and chest. <laughs> it was just like i and then like thanks joseph Gla- uh yeah glass for that question i'm just like hell yeah <laughs> uh, yeah it was, it was that it was also my first name time seeing my name in print so yeah that's when the addiction started <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. one final thing really for for both of you is what i loved about your um the selections that you both made is that they're they're both important to you as um you know they're they capture a moment in time in your life when you when you first read these books. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also they both represent in their own way, as we mentioned earlier, this, you know, this representation of, of a generation of people, you know, like so, you know, Gen X is, is quite literally the case in, in both of these stories. How much do you think as these two issues or these two, you know, um, these two comics, how much do you think? How good do you think they are at representing that generation or representing that kind of um, that era, that age? We've mentioned, we talked a bit more about Ghost World in this sense, but what about kind of Generation X in that sense? I think it did a fairly good job. Um, I certainly remember at the time feeling like I could relate to it very well and feeling like, I, I was almost going to say like feeling like the teens spoke like real teens, but I think what the way I felt when I was reading it at the time was we felt like real cool teens. 
Like <laughs> I wish I was this verbose as a as as a teenager and everything. Um, but I feel like he they did capture the moment quite well in that regard. Um, certainly in those earlier issues um, than necessarily further down the line. Um, but yeah, I, and I think that's. I mean, I'm to the point that like Generation X was considered to have done it so well. They did those like weird little ash can issues, and um, they did. Uh, if I remember, because I don't remember, I've still not tracked this one down. Um, like an indie issue which had like I think Jim Mahood drew. Oh, oh my gosh! I was gonna tweet about that. I'll tweet <laughs> about it now. I, I have it. You mean the Generation X Underground special that I'm holding yes, in my hand right now? <laughs> so like they really sort of. I felt like they really connected to that really well. So they um, and like Gen X was for a while certainly known as the book which had maybe a close connection to that sort of side of things. So, yeah, I, th- I think they got it pretty well. I, I would even say that, much like we were saying, Ghost World possibly does still stand up really well, but, you know, was very much a product of its time. Um, i say Gen X is the same. I think that if people now were reading Generation X issue one right now for the first time, they'd still potentially find it, like, as much of a hook um, as any modern brand new number one Marvel decides to put out, you know? I would agree, because um, I was actually, like, looking at generation x uh, number one and being like do i give do i give this to my ghost in la artist to be like look like this is like world building at its finest because she's doing a great job but you know also it's like i i think she's only done like 300 or 400 pages of comics i could be wrong <laughs> um and so you know there's always like it's like okay like i'm not mansplaining you but you know I, i've done everything in this biz so you know, like let's basically it, we're talking about how to make a first issue special, and there's mm-hmm. something really special about that that I think still thrives uh, so many years later. And and but I was wondering, I was like, well, how is she gonna look at this artwork? Like, how is she gonna is she gonna think it's too liney, it's too overworked, or is she gonna understand like, wow, this is like an amazing balance of like graphic design illustration storytelling and like style but yeah so i think i think i think generation x number one will and it it is a pretty good representation in the sense again because they're like they're barely in normal clothes like and they (laughs) and and they don't have a normal like there's no normalcy in that book like from the get-go they're like look at our crazy danger room session um and that and also yeah on page four page guthrie is like I need to prepare myself to be a leader of a team. So it's definitely not anything like relatability's out the window, but like, do you want to be those characters and do you want to watch these characters do things and do these characters reflect actual teenagers? Like I'd say yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all I've got for you both. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> you're both, um, you're both working so hard. So I'll, uh, I'll give you a chance to, to pimp your own stuff now uh, to let everyone know where we can find everything. Um, so Joe, um, tell us about uh, tell us about Pride Volume Two. Tell us about um, your Kickstarter that's coming up. Um, well, as a for the Kickstarter thing, we still no concrete plans, but we're looking at July. So keep an eye out for July. Keep an eye out for my social media because I will not stop pimping it when it comes out. Um, but also, as just decided here in this podcast, quite possibly July before. Um, Exclusive for Yeah. See, <laughs> brand new. Um, but for certain, like the one thing you can get now and read now would be the Pride Season One, the Pride Adventure Season One, which are both 
two over 100 page collections uh, collecting five to six issues each. Um, and of course, Pride Season 2, Issue 1, which are exclusively on Comixology Originals, so on the Comixology app, um, for you to purchase and read and uh, hopefully love and hopefully find characters which you know you absolutely adore and become your new favourite superheroes. Cool. And what about you, Cena? Um, you can find me reading The Pride Season 2 <laughs> on Comixology <laughs> by Joseph Glass, available now. <laughs> characters you'll love and adore. Um... Yeah, I'm just all over the place. Uh, I'm like, I don't know. Find me on Twitter and Instagram, and that's usually where I'll be talking about what's going on. But honestly, I think Jughead's Time Police um, and Ghosted in LA are sort of my two uber favorite projects right now. That I'm like, if you if y'all want to see what I'm about outside of Iceman, hit this up, or just pick up Iceman Volume Three, Amazing Friends, because that's uh, maybe my favorite book in the series and then on top of that it features uh ireland's favorite comic book artist nathan stockman uh amazing guy really really nice guy and of course um, shay darkvale what's that and of course shay darkvale oh yeah yeah yeah. and we have a mutant drag queen character in there too the first appearance of yes. a mainstream mutant drag queen superhero say that 10 times fast um <laughs> but yeah anyway yeah so please people pick up those books because uh, I, I have no idea how you promote a creator-owned book in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much both. I, I genuinely appreciate it. Uh, it's been a blast talking to you both. Yeah, thank Same, you. thank you. That's the Issue is part of the Multiversity Comics Podcast Network. You can find this show and plenty more at multiversitycomics.com. You can subscribe to the show via Apple, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. The show is on Twitter at That's The Issue, and I'm on there too at Matt Loon. Finally, you can contact the show via email at That's The Issue Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.